Thank you, John and the praise team. It's good to have Jill back with us this morning, isn't it? So glad to see her again and praising the Lord for Gordon's recovery and continued healing. You can continue to pray for him, but I think he's doing well, but certainly good to see Jill again right now and have her back and using her gift here among us. It's great. You turn your Bible, please, to Galatians chapter 3. This morning, Galatians chapter 3, we're entering into a new section of Galatians. Uh, if you, I don't know if you remember this or not, but we can outline the book of Galatians into three parts. Chapters 1 and 2 is the more historical or biographical, autobiographical part where Paul is recounting his experience with the Galatians and his experience in ministry and how he came to faith in Christ, his relationship with the Jerusalem apostles and just uh, verifying and uh, certifying that he was called by God to be an apostle. He was preaching the gospel that God had given to him. Chapters 3 and 4 are more doctrinal. Paul is going to be teaching the Galatians and expounding more, particularly on this idea of justification by faith alone. And so the chapters 3 and 4 are more going to be intense and, and, and focused on the doctrinal theological matters in the book. And then in chapters 5 and 6, we have more of the practical parts of the book where Paul is applying the things he's been talking about to the Galatian church. So we're in, in coming to chapter 3, we're entering into a new section, the section that's addressing doctrinal matters, particularly, again, this issue of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the central message of the book. That's the key doctrinal issue that Paul has been dealing with or will deal with in the book of Galatians. How is one justified before God? Now, when we use the word justification, we're talking about how individuals will stand before God on the day of judgment, right? Justification is God's declaration of righteousness. When we stand before God, we are either on the right side of God's law or we're on the wrong side of God's law, right? We're either righteous before him or we're guilty. So the question is, how will we stand before God? And if we are going to be righteous, we're going to be declared righteous. If God's going to declare us righteous, justified before him, will that be on the basis of faith in Christ? Or will that be on the basis of our works? And particularly the works of the law. Now, why is this even an issue in the first place? Remember that the first two chapters, Paul is kind of untangling what the problem is in among the Galatian churches. Paul had preached the gospel to the Galatians. And they had responded to that gospel in faith. But after he left, there were some false teachers who came in and taught that the Galatians needed to be circumcised and obey other aspects of the Jewish law, the Old Testament law, in order to be justified. They said that justification came by works of the law. And the problem is that the Galatians believed them. Many of them were starting to embrace this new doctrine, this doctrine of justification by works. They were being circumcised. They were, were partaking of the various Jewish Old Testament laws that, that they said needed to be fulfilled in order to be truly the people of God. They were abandoning the gospel that Paul had preached to them. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians to correct this matter. And just to remind you, his central point, his thesis statement comes in chapter 2, verse 16. Look at there first, chapter 2, verse 16. This is, again, if you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, I told you to underline this. If you didn't underline it, you need to underline it now. Underline it, highlight it, whatever you do. This is the key theme, key verse in the book of Galatians. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So now as we move on to chapter 3, Paul elaborates on this this justification by faith even more, this doctrine of justification by faith even more. He's going to elaborate on why justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. So let's look at our passage. We're going to look this morning at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. You just follow along in your version as I read out loud our text for us. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, the question I want to ask this morning is, how do we know that justification is by faith alone? How do we know that justification is by faith alone? Paul is going to provide three proofs for us in this passage so that we know why justification is by faith alone. First, in verses 1 through 5, we have the proof from the Galatians' own experience. And then in verses 6 through 9, we have the proof from Abraham, the great Israelite patriarch. And then in verses 10 through 14, we have the proof from scripture. So that'll be our outline this morning. The proof from the Galatians experience, the proof from Abraham, and the proof from scripture. So let's begin with the proof from experience. In verses 1 through 5, Paul contends that the Galatians were truly converted, that they truly were justified. Now, why does he assume that? If you look back in verses 2 and 3 and also verse 5, it's because he says they had received the Holy Spirit. Three times in these first 5 verses, Paul acknowledges that the Galatians had received the Spirit, they were regenerated by the Spirit, and they experienced the power, the ministry, and the life of the Spirit in their midst. So look at verse 2. He says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you work and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So the Holy Spirit here was at work among the Galatians, and Paul says that that was the evidence of the fact that they were justified by faith, that they were justified, they had received the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is the promise 
of the new covenant. When God had prophesied about the new covenant to his people in the Old Testament, he promised them that he would give them his spirit as the source of life and fellowship with God under that covenant. So, for example, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27 The Lord, speaking through the prophet, says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Also in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, Peter, of course, quotes that passage from Joel in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He was there signifying the fact that what God had promised in the old covenant was now coming true in the new covenant. That God was giving his spirit to his people. God had sent his Holy Spirit upon the church. These were his new people, the people that he was calling to himself under this new covenant. And the Spirit's presence among these early believers signified that God had indeed fulfilled the new covenant in the death and resurrection of Jesus. All who entered into that covenant received the Spirit at the moment of conversion, and the Spirit powerfully worked among them to give evidence that they had entered the new covenant. So Paul here is reminding the Galatians of the fact that they have already received the Holy Spirit. They have already entered into the new covenant. And how do we know they entered into the new covenant? They had received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit they knew was among them because he was working powerfully among them. We see that in verse 5. He was doing things such as miracles. He was working very powerfully, supernaturally in their midst, so that they knew that they were indeed God's very people. The only way that that can happen... The only way that they can receive the Spirit is if they were justified by faith in Christ. Again, the the, the Galatians had received the Holy Spirit. It was proof, it was evidence that they had been justified. So Paul then asks them the question, how did you receive the Spirit? In other words, he's asking them the question, how were you justified? And he says they were justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Now the Judaizers, these are the false teachers who had come into the region of Galatia and begun teaching in the Galatian churches. They were teaching, among other things, that the law was necessary to be fulfilled. These new Gentile Christians had to obey the Old Testament law. But they were in particular focusing on circumcision. That the way to enter into this new covenant people was by circumcision. So the fact that they had received that they had received the Holy Spirit, they had put their faith and trust in Christ, was great. They needed to do that. But they weren't quite done. There's another step, another hurdle to, to jump, and that is that they must now be circumcised. Now, we don't know for sure, but, and kind of jumping ahead just a, for a minute, and don't stay there, but he's going to make Abraham a centerpiece of his argument. That's point two, right? It seems that the reason why he does that is because the Judaizers made their argument, based their argument on Abraham. And in particular, they base their argument probably on Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14. Let me read that for you. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is something just to continue, God tells Abraham. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. 
every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is, brought, who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the basis of a, of a literal reading of Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14, the Judaizers probably taught that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to become a member of the covenant community, in order to be a descendant of Abraham, to be counted as one of Abraham's offspring. They must be circumcised to fulfill their obligation to entering into this new covenant people. To remain uncircumcised, according to Genesis 17, meant that they would be cut off from God's people and they would be cut off from God forever, regardless of their faith in the gospel. So it wasn't enough to have faith in Christ. Again, that was a first step. It was necessary, but it wasn't the whole thing. And so as Paul had taught them to trust in Christ, and they had these Judaizers came in and said, keep going. You've got to do one more thing. You've got to be circumcised, and then and only then can you be counted as the true people of God. And yet, on the basis of Paul's argument here, the Galatians, Gentile Christians, had not been circumcised, but they still received the Holy Spirit, the promise of the new covenant. In other words, Paul is saying here implicitly that they don't need circumcision to be justified because they were justified by faith in Christ alone. Paul had proclaimed the gospel very clearly to them on his first missionary journey, and they responded to hearing that gospel with faith. That was sufficient. That's what brought their justification. That's what caused the Spirit to take up residence in their lives and to be active in their midst. So Paul here is making the argument that submitting to circumcision is pointless. It doesn't save because the Galatians had already received the Spirit by faith without circumcision. And it doesn't make sense that circumcision will make them more sanctified or advance their sanctification because the same spirit that regenerates also sanctifies. The spirit that caused them to be born again was still at work among them, Paul says in verse 5, to make them more and more like Christ. He was making them more and more holy, conforming them to the image of Christ. And so circumcision is pointless for the believer. Now, Paul says all of this in verses 1 through 5 in the form of a, of a rebuke. Do you notice in verse 1 and verse 3 that Paul refers to the Galatians as foolish? He begins, well, he, he didn't put in chapter 3. He, but this section begins with, oh, foolish Galatians. He's just finished kind of this summarizing this, this encounter with Peter back in Antioch. As he wraps that up, he turns back to the Galatians to kind of focus in and apply what he's been talking about now to them. Oh, foolish Galatians. And again in verse 3, are you so foolish? Now, it's interesting that he uses the word there, foolish, because foolishness in the Old Testament is to be contrasted with wisdom. Those who are truly wise are the people of God, people who are trusting in God, people who are submitting themselves to God's word. But fools are those who disregard God, who reject God. In fact, it says in the Psalms, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. What makes the fool the fool is not his ignorance. It's the fact that he knows there's a God, but he is refusing to acknowledge him, refusing to obey him, refusing to submit himself 
to him. So by submitting to circumcision, the Galatians here are showing an utter disregard and irreverence for God. They've aligned themselves with those who hate God and reject God. And of course, that's a dangerous, dangerous alliance. Well, even though they've responded to the gospel by faith and have been justified, the Galatians' new affinity for circumcision reveals that they have been deceived. In fact, the word bewitched there in verse 1 is this word that's used in ancient, in ancient Roman times to refer to someone casting a spell over someone else. And the reason why a person would cast a spell was to try to gain influence in that person's life, to get them to do things they would not ordinarily do. And Paul says here, you've been bewitched. Someone, it seems, has cast a spell on you, and you've fallen under the influence of these false teachers. You're not thinking clearly. But I think Paul is even going further to say, it's not just these false teachers who are bewitching you, but it's Satan himself. Satan has deceived you so that you are abandoning the gospel that has saved you. You are giving yourself over to something else that cannot save. And in doing so, you are undermining the work of the gospel in your life. So Paul uses very strong language in these first few verses, first five verses. He uses, notice there's a lot of rhetorical questions here that are assuming answers that they would propose, that they would agree with Paul. Paul is trying to jolt them back to reality. He's countering Satan's deception with the truth. He's making them aware of their deception. He's calling out their deviation from the gospel. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them back to faithfulness the Lord. Well, just as Paul challenged the Galatians, I think it's good and healthy and wise for us to also evaluate our own experience. It's a little bit different for us, though, than it was I mean, Paul was an apostle, but Paul also is going to lay the Galatians' lives next to the, the Word of God. So whenever we're trying to evaluate our own lives, we can't use experience as the ultimate arbiter, right? We can't use it as the ultimate standard. We have to we have to compare our experience to the truth of God's Word. And so we should measure. Paul says here we should, we should measure our experience by Scripture. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 to the Corinthian church, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless you indeed fail to meet the test? And Peter also writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So it's good, it's healthy, it's wise for us to ask ourselves regularly, am I justified by faith? Am I trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Do I see evidence of the Spirit's work in my life? Evidence that would point to the fact that I am truly justified. Are we continuing to walk in this faith? As Paul was saying in Colossians, right? Just as you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, so also walk in Him. Are you walking in this justification? Are you being sanctified by the Spirit? Do you see the Spirit at work in your life more and more? Do you see yourself becoming more and more like Jesus Christ? Now, I know it feels like sometimes it is baby steps. But if you can look longer term, am I more like Jesus today than I was 20 years ago? I hope so. I should see some kind of difference. Maybe it's hard in the moment, day to day, week to week, but over the course of our lives, do you see yourself becoming more and more like Christ? And so the exhortation here for us is the exhortation that Paul 
gave to the Galatians. Do not forsake trusting in Christ. Do not cease believing the gospel. Keep trusting Christ by faith. Keep walking by faith. Now Paul is grounding his assessment of the Galatians' experience from Scripture. That's the essence of verses 6 through 14. So what Scripture does Paul use to show that we are indeed justified by faith? Well, the first example that Paul gives is that case of Abraham. So that's why I'm going to bracket Abraham out from the rest of the Scriptures. Paul's going to use four, five, six verses in verses 10 to 14. But Abraham's kind of the centerpiece of this. Let me bracket him out. He gets the treatment from, ver- from verses 6 to 9. So let's consider the proof from Abraham. Now, Paul, what he does in verses 1 through 5, and actually in moving into verse 6, is that he compares the Galatians' experience with Abraham's experience. You see verse 6? He says just, so verses 1 through 5, talking about how God has been at work in them, how, how, how Christ, how God justified them through Christ, through his uh, death on the cross, his resurrection of the dead. The Spirit was at work in their lives. Now he says in verse 6, transitioning just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul here is putting the Galatians and Abraham side by side and making a comparative experience. That, that word just as is linking what Paul has said about the Galatians justification in verses 1 through 5 to what he says about, about Abraham's justification in verse 6. Now, again, why would Paul bring out Abraham as a special case? Well, there's several reasons. First, Abraham is Israel's founding father. And so, being this preeminent person in Israel's history, Paul is saying here that that the Galatians were justified in the same way that Abraham was justified. And so, if, if justification by faith was good for Abraham, it ought to be good and is good for the Galatians. Secondly, Abraham's justification also shows that justification by faith has been God's plan from the very beginning. God has always intended his people to be justified by faith, not by works of the law. The law was never a means of justification. God justified his people by faith from the very beginning of Israel's history. So this is not something new. The new covenant is new, but there are touch points with the old covenant, and this is one of those touch points. This is how God has always saved his people was justification by faith. Also, Abraham precedes the law. And he'll talk more about this in the next passage in verses 15 to 29. But Abraham precedes the law. Abraham could not be justified by works of the law because the law did not exist during Abraham's lifetime. He could only be justified by the means that God had given at that point in history, and that was by faith. And then finally, Paul uses Abraham as the centerpiece of his argument because the Judaizers were probably using Abraham as the centerpiece of their argument. So by using Abraham, he is undermining the argument of the Judaizers. The Judaizers, again, would have argued that Abraham would have been justified by works, particularly the work of circumcision based upon the mandate that God gave in Genesis 17, verses 9 to 14. But Paul here holds up Abraham as an example to demolish the Judaizers' argument. So how was Abraham justified? Well, he was justified by faith. In fact, Paul is going to quote Genesis 15:6 in verse 6. He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now, I don't have time to go through a whole uh, explanation of Genesis 15, but the basic sense of that chapter is that, that how, at least how it begins, that Abraham is distraught by the fact that he has no heir. He has no children of his own, no progeny. The person that's going to inherit his estate when he dies is his chief servant, who is a Gentile. He can't fathom that at all. And so God puts Abraham's mind to rest because he makes him a promise. In Genesis 15, verses 4 and 5, God says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, came to Abraham, and said, This man shall not be your heir, referring to Abraham's servant Eliezer, your, own, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Later in that chapter, in Genesis 15, verses 12 to 21, God sealed that promise with a covenant, binding himself to that promise. He bound himself to fulfill the promise he had just made to Abraham. Well, what was Abraham's response to that promise? It is verse 6 that Paul quotes in our verse 6, Galatians 3, 6, where he says that Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. Abraham trusted God to fulfill this promise. And that's important because the text says, Genesis 15 says, and Paul quotes it in uh, Genesis 3, 6, or Galatians 3, 6, that God counted Abraham righteous because of his faith, right? Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. What was the result of that? And it, and it was counted to him. It was counted to Abraham as righteousness. God counted Abraham righteous. Abraham was considered to be righteous. God was declaring him to be righteous. Now, the Judaizers, again, probably taught that Abraham was counted righteous because of his faithfulness. And in fact, if you look at how the Jews have interpreted this since even before the New Testament, even like during the, the, the early intertestamental period, they were saying that Abraham was right before God on the basis of his faithfulness, that he was obedient to God. In fact, even Jews to this day will say that Abraham was justified because he was obedient, he was faithful. And yet Paul says that it's a un- misunderstanding of that particular uh, uh, text. That Abraham was justified not by his faithfulness, not by his obedience, but by his faith in God. In fact, by citing here Genesis 15, verse 6, which comes before Genesis 17, and that passage where God commands Abraham to be circumcised, Paul here is saying that it was God's intention to justify Abraham by faith and not by circumcision. That Abraham was justified by believing God and believing his promise particularly the promise that his very own son, which Paul again will interpret for us in the rest of Galatians 3, to be Jesus Christ, his ultimate son, the one who would go to the cross and die for his sins and be raised from the dead so that he might be declared righteous before God. It was Abraham's faith in that promise long before he could obey the command to be circumcised. that That is what caused Abraham to be counted as righteous. Abraham was justified by faith. God counted or reckoned or considered or declared Abraham to be righteous. So in other words, on the day of judgment, in the divine courtroom, before God the righteous judge, 
Paul says that Abraham will be declared righteous because of his faith in God's promise. So Abraham was justified by faith before, long before he was ever circumcised. Therefore, Paul says, justification, Abraham's justification was by faith and not by works. Well, Paul argues that the Galatians are justified in the same way that Abraham was justified. By faith, right? Again, that phrase, just as, Paul is laying Abraham and the Galatians side by side, saying there is similarity here, there is comparison. That just as Abraham was justified by faith, so also the Galatians have been justified by faith. And he furthers his argument in verse 7 when he says that those of faith, that is those who possess faith, those who are trusting Christ, those who are believing the gospel, these are those who are children of Abraham. The children that God promised Abraham were not biological descendants. They were biological descendants, but really the essence of that promise were that Abraham would have spiritual descendants, that Abraham would have a family, that Abraham would have a nation of people who would come from him. And how is it that they would be like him? How would they come into his family? It wasn't by circumcision, as the Judaizers said. It was by faith. It was by faith. And how do we know this? Well, God again declared it to Abraham even before Genesis 15, 6. Notice in verse 8 that Paul uh, quotes the last part of Genesis 12, 3. He says, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And Paul calls this the gospel. And God announced to Abraham, even before Abraham believed God's promise, that he would bless the nations of the earth through Abraham. And the Greek word there, nations, is the word that oftentimes is translated as Gentiles. It's referring to the Gentile nations. God is saying to Abraham, look, all the nations of the earth, the Gentiles, are going to be blessed through you. And what is that blessing? Well, that blessing is to be included among their family. It's to be included among Abraham's descendants. Abraham's descendants are not born biologically, but they are born spiritually, Paul argues here. It's by faith and not by circumcision that Gentiles are justified like Abraham, believing the same promise that God gave to Abraham, that through him, the blessing for them will come to them. That blessing comes from God through Abraham. That blessing that God promises to Abraham, Paul explains later in Galatians, is his descendant, Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection that the Gentiles are blessed. But they can only receive this blessing by faith and not by works. And so what is the proper response to the gospel? It is faith. Just as Abraham believed God and was justified, the Galatians also must believe God and only believe God trusting His promise through Jesus Christ, trusting the promise of the Gospel, and then and only then will they be justified. By faith we inherit the blessing that God promised to Abraham. And what is this blessing that we receive that God promised Abraham in Jesus Christ? It's the blessing of forgiveness of sins. It's the blessing of being reconciled to God, having a relationship with God. It's the blessing of being justified, standing and being declared righteous before God on the Day of Judgment. This blessing is union with Christ. It's adoption as sons, as Paul will, sit, will share in chapter 4. 
It is, a, it is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which we mentioned already in verses 1 through 3, 1 through 5, and Paul will come back to in verses 13 and 14. This blessing includes everlasting life and everlasting joy. And so we ought, like the Galatians, to imitate Abraham's faith. Like Abraham, we must believe the gospel. We must entrust ourselves to Christ. For it is only by faith that we inherit the blessing that God promised Abraham in the gospel. But Paul continues his argument by now turning to other scriptures to prove justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So let's look at that, the proof from scripture in verses 10 to 14. Paul marshals out other scripture passages to contrast the blessing of faith and the curse of the law. Notice again, back in verses uh, 6 through 9, particularly verses 8 through 9, Paul is stressing the blessing that comes through Abraham and is received by faith, the blessing of faith. But he contrasts that in verses 10 through 12 with those who are seeking justification by works of the law. Those who seek justification by works of the law are Curse. Notice that in verses 10 to 14, the word curse appears five times. So that's Paul's point of emphasis here. He's showing a contrast, right? To trust Christ by faith is to receive the blessing that God promised Abraham. To seek justification by works of the law is to receive a curse. He's saying, setting those things side by side for us. Faith brings blessing, but the works of the law bring a curse. And Paul begins his argument with a quotation of Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. This is in verse 10. Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Yes, Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Now that verse, again, we look at Scripture, we want to look at it in context as best as we can. So that verse comes in the context of Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. And in that, those chapters, God announces the blessings that he will give to his people for obeying him, obeying his law, and the curses that he will bring to his people for their disobedience to the law. So blessing, so if they obey, they'll be blessed. If they disobey, they'll be cursed. So what does God require of his people? He requires of them complete obedience to all of his law. If Israel disobeys the law, he will curse them. If they, if they obey, he'll bless them. But if they disobey his law in any way, he will curse them. So failure to obey the law perfectly brings a curse. Now, does anyone perfectly obey God's law? No. If you're not convinced of that, read the rest of the Old Testament. How did Israel do? In fact, Paul says in verse, 10, in verse 11 that it is evident that no one is justified by works of the law. Paul is implying here what he will say explicitly in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then in verse 23, he goes on to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, since all fail to obey God's law perfectly, what's the result? All are cursed by God. So works of the law, including circumcision, won't justify the Galatians in any way. 
That's the main point of verse 10. God requires complete obedience to the law, and no one obeys that law. Therefore, those who try and strive to seek justification under the law will be cursed. But then Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in verse 11 to prove that, there was never, that this was never God's intention in the first place. God never intended anyone to be justified by works of the law. Paul, again, in verse 11 says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, and he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. So God never intended the law to be a means of justification. The Old Testament, Paul's proof here, is that in the Old Testament, in the age of the law itself, it declared that justification was by faith alone. And then in verse 12, Paul goes on to quote Leviticus 18.5 to show the antithesis between faith and law. Verse 12 says, but the law is not a faith, rather, but the, but the law is not a faith, rather, and then he quotes Leviticus 18.5, the one who does them shall live by them. So this verse is very much like that Deuteronomy verse that Paul quoted in verse 10. In Leviticus 18.1 through 5, Paul is here mandating Israel's faithfulness to the law. In the context of that passage, it says that God had called his people out of Egypt, and when they get to the promised land, he doesn't want them to live like the Egyptians anymore. The Egyptians were sinful. They were faithless. They were idol worshipers. They were idolatrous. They were atheistic in the sense that they did not recognize the one true God. What, what, what God was telling his people is that when you come into the land, you're not to be like them in any way. So God gave his law as a way for people to live within this covenant relationship he had made with them. The law was not made for justification. The law was simply to regulate life in the land. Right? It tells how Israel should live out their covenant relationship with God, the covenant relationship he made with them at Mount Sinai after he brought them out of Egypt. Now, how should they do that? How should they live in the context of this covenant? Well, they should obey the law. In fact, what Leviticus 18.5 similar to Deuteronomy 27.26 that Paul quoted back in verse 10. How Israel appropriates the law determines how God will deal with them. So if they obey the law perfectly, he will bless them. But if they disobey, then they must suffer the consequences of their disobedience. And what is the consequences of their disobedience? It is God's curse. It's punishment. So what Paul is trying to convey here is that if one uses the law as a means of justification, then he must live by the law, the whole law, completely, perfectly, without any error. How he lives regarding the law determines God's disposition with him. But since Paul has already implied that none live according to God's law perfectly, all are under a curse. So the whole essence of what Paul is saying here is that works of the law do not and cannot justify one before God. Therefore, justification by works of the law is futile. So Paul's argument in verses 10 to 12 is that all are cursed because none live perfectly according to God's law. How does this apply to the Galatians? Well, if they submit themselves to God's law rather than believing the gospel, then they will face God's curse. They will not face, they will not experience God's blessing that he promised to Abraham in the gospel. So in other words, they are looking at trading in the blessing that God promised to Abraham for a curse by putting themselves back under the law. So if no one can be justified by works of the law and all are condemned by the law, 
How then can anyone inherit the blessing of Abraham? And this is the good news. This is the punchline Paul is getting to in verses 13 and 14. Another set of extremely important verses in the book of Galatians. You might want to underline these or highlight these as well. Paul says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So how does God bless those who are under a curse? It is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Again, because no one obeys God's law perfectly, all are under a curse. But Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. The word redeemed there is a word that was used for the acquisition of slaves in the Roman marketplace. As, as you know, this, the slavery in the ancient times, uh, slaves were bought and sold. And so they were taken to the marketplace and they were, they were put on a platform and they were auctioned off to the highest bidder, if you will. And so whenever a, a slave was put up for sale, a potential owner would purchase that slave for some price and that slave would become his possession. He would essentially redeem him from some other uh, master or from, uh, from, from the, the person that's auctioning them off. But he is bringing that slave into his own household and making him a part of his family to do the work he desires him to do. In the Old Testament, the word is often associated with the Exodus. When God liberated his people from Pharaoh's bondage and brought them to Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them. At the Exodus, God redeemed his people. In other words, he set them free from their slavery and he made them to be his own special people. Well, Christ, Paul says, has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He has broken our bondage to the law, which is the requirement now, which was, was the requirement for us to live according perfectly to God's standards. Christ has broken, the bondage, broken our bondage to the law and he removed the curse that hung over us by our sinfulness. Now, how does Christ redeem us from the curse of the law? Well, Paul says in verse 13, by becoming a curse for us. And this is the great doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And that's a long word. It just simply means that Christ died in our place. That Jesus became a curse for us. He did not deserve to be cursed. In fact, if there's anyone, well, not if, there's no one. No one can obey God's law perfectly except for one person. And that was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only man who perfectly lived according to God's law. Therefore, because he lived perfectly according to God's law, based upon what we've read here in Galatians 3, does Jesus deserve to be cursed? No, he deserves to be blessed. He's been perfectly obedient to God's law. And yet, he was cursed. Why was he cursed? He was cursed for us. In other words, when, he died, when Jesus died upon the cross, he took our sins upon himself. And he suffered the wrath of God that we ourselves should have experienced on the final day. In fact, Paul here quotes Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 in verse 13 to show that Jesus was indeed cursed. How do we know that Jesus was cursed? He hung on a tree. Deuteronomy 21:23 says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. It was a sign of disgrace, a sign of great dishonor to be hanging from a tree. And it would also serve as a not to dishonor God, not to be someone who was flagrantly sinning against God. So Jesus hung on a tree. 
Therefore, it showed that he was cursed. And yet the curse he suffered, the curse he took on himself was not his own sin, but it was ours. Jesus became a curse for us, Paul says. He took on the curse that we deserve for failing to obey God's law perfectly. This was an act of God's grace. God graciously provided his son Jesus to remove our curse and said by cursing his own son. So on the cross, our sins were imputed to Christ and he suffered God's wrath that those sins deserved. Paul will say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Substitutionary atonement. Christ died in our place. Why did Christ become a curse for us? Well, he says in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham. Inclusion as his descendants. Inclusion into the people of God under the new covenant. He even connects that with receiving the spirit. Again, the promise of the new covenant. In other words, the blessing of Abraham that comes to us is receiving the Spirit. It's justification by faith. It is reconciliation with God. It is forgiveness of sins. It is being called the Son of God. It is having eternal life. All these things are the blessing of Abraham. God promised that we would receive the Holy Spirit, and indeed we have by faith. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us so that we might be converted and justified. He applies the salvific work of Christ to our hearts so that we receive all the benefits inherent in his work. Christ became a curse for us so that we could receive his promised spirit and possess true life imitating Christ's own life. And again, the point that Paul makes is that we receive this blessing. How? By faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works of the law. Well, Paul's apologetic argument for justification by faith alone in Christ alone gives us confident, confidence and comfort in the truth of the gospel and in the truth of Scripture. Justification has always been God's plan from the very beginning. And we understand that because of what's preserved for us in the Old Testament. And not only did God promise it back then, and tell us how it would be. But he worked through history to make it happen. He fulfilled every promise that he made in the Old Testament. Paul gives us convincing proof that Christ's death is the means of justification. That we are only able to stand confidently before God on the day of judgment because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, paying the penalty for our sin and imputing to us his righteousness. So if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to challenge you to consider and respond to the gospel. Ask yourself the question, how will I stand before God? Because we're all going to die someday. We're all going to have to give an account of our lives before God when that day comes. So how will you stand before him? On what basis will you seek to be right before God? Will it be by your works? 
Have you perfectly kept God's law? No. Our world, our world will tell you just keep doing good things. But it's insufficient. We have not perfectly kept God's law. And so, if you're looking to seek your righteousness before God on the basis of your works, you are under God's curse. And you are condemned. And so I urge you to trust Christ. He became a curse for you so that you might be blessed. He died for your sins and he endured God's wrath for you. So I would encourage you, I challenge you, repent of your sins and trust Christ by faith. And brothers and sisters, let us also be encouraged to keep walking in our justification. Justification is not the beginning of the Christian life. It's not just the beginning of the Christian life, but it is the ground and center for all of the Christian life from beginning to end. As Paul said in verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Do you think that just you got your fire insurance, you'll be all right before God on the day of judgment, and now it's easy peasy? I can go and do whatever I want? No. There's nothing that Satan wants more to do than to bewitch you and cause you to walk contrary to the gospel. And that is why we must keep preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. We must continue to live in our justification. We must continue to remember what Christ has done for us, that he has paid the penalty for our sin. To remember that we are counted righteous before God. To remember that Christ lives in us now through the person of the Holy Spirit. We must remember that we are now to walk by the Spirit so that our life truly reflects our righteousness in Christ. Justification must be the basis and the bullseye of our lives. May God give us the grace to continue on in our justification by His Spirit, just as we received it by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of the Gospel that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, that He has done it all to the glory of Your name. We are undeserving. And yet You have provided this gracious gift for us by grace. Oh God, how we thank You this morning. How we praise You and worship You because of it. But Father, I pray that we are also compelled even more to continue to walk in this way of justification, to continue to walk in this way of sanctification for your glory, so that our lives might show the fruitfulness of what you have already done in us. May you be praised. May you give us your grace to continue. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.